Let's turn together to Matthew 21. Matthew chapter 21, we will read verse 33 to the end of the chapter. Verse 33. Hear another parable. There was a certain householder who planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard comes, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They said unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen who will render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, that the kingdom of God shall be taken from you, and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder." And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. And when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they took him for a prophet. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit this morning, and you'd give us ears to hear and a heart of understanding Lord, help us not to shrink back from the hard truth of your word, the hard truth of life. Lord, help us not, like so many, shrink back because what you say is sometimes uncomfortable. Give us courage, Lord, this morning, and reverence for your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> In the final week of Jesus' earthly uh, ministry before his death, we have him in full confrontation with the Pharisees. And we see this confrontation at its peak from chapters uh, 21 to 23. When Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, that's when it begins, the final climactic confrontation. He cleanses the temple, he challenges their authority, and they challenge his. And Jesus proceeds then to give three parables that refer explicitly and directly to the Pharisees. And we saw one last week. The three parables regarding the Pharisees. All the parables that he gives, all these three are connected and related. The first one, as we saw, focused on what the Pharisees are like 
Remember the parable of the two sons? He said, there's a man who had two sons, and then he said to the one son, go work in my vineyard. The one son said, I don't want to. And then he said to the second one, go work in my vineyard. He says, I will, my Lord. You know, me. And Jesus is saying, you guys are like that second son. You tell God, you give him phony respect, you pretend to be obedient, you pretend to be loyal, but you're really not. You're in fact just like everybody else, you just pretend to be different. So that's what the first parable focuses on, what the Pharisees are like. The second parable, which we're going to look at this morning, focuses on what will happen to the Pharisees and to their plans. What will happen to their course of life? And the third one, as we'll see, is going to focus on what will happen afterward. All the parables contain the same elements, but different. each one has a different focus. Matthew is the only gospel that gives all three, but Mark and Luke give us this second parable, which shows us how significant this one that we're going to look at is this morning. This second parable is in all three. Extremely significant because God wants all of us to know what will happen to the Pharisees' way of life, to that course, to that behavior, to that mindset, to that plan. What will happen to self-righteous people? Self-righteous people, as we're going to see, resist God. And God wants to show us what will happen to such resistance and that resistance against God and his truth and his Christ is futile. That's the theme of this parable. So verse 33, Jesus jumps straight into this. There's no break. Listen to another parable, he says. It follows immediately on the heels of the first it begins with a vineyard. Jesus speaks of a man who plants a vineyard. Now this is common Old Testament imagery. Jewish people would be very familiar with this kind of imagery. In fact, uh, it's all over the Old Testament. One of the most famous places in the Old Testament where a vineyard uh, is featured is in Isaiah chapter 5. It's actually called the Song of the Vineyard. And Israel is the vineyard. Usually in the Old Testament, Israel is seen as God's vineyard that he plants. So God has something that he's after. God plants a vineyard. He's the one who does it. And it's Israel. As J.C. Ryle uh, pointed out, God dealt with the Jews as a man deals with a piece of land which he fences out and cultivates while all the country around is left untilled and waste. You see? So that's why I mean, we find this imagery in the Old Testament as well as here, because you've got to imagine God's dealing with the world like that. He leaves the Gentiles to themselves. He doesn't cultivate them. They grow weeds. They are idolatrous. They don't know how to live. They're in darkness, alienated from God, alienated from truth, living in darkness. But the Jews, on the other hand, God took to be his special people, planted a vineyard, it says here in verse 33, hedged it about, digged a winepress in it, built a tower. The point is he cultivated this people. He cultivated this nation. He gave them his law. He showed up by delivering them out of Egypt and showed them himself and taught them how to live and punished them when they didn't live according to his law. So God chose them like a vineyard. 
And why does a man plant a vineyard? Because a man is after something. What is a man after when he plants a vineyard? Fruit, grapes, wine, right? He's after something. God's not doing this arbitrarily. And what is God after when he saved Israel out of Egypt, brought them to Sinai, gave him the law? What is he after? And what we know from Isaiah, and this is true in our parable here, the fruit here is righteousness. God is looking for righteousness. God is looking for righteousness in this world of unrighteousness, in this world of sin. Because sin brought the curse, and righteousness will bring the blessing. And God's desire is to bless man. God's desire when he created the world was not just to create it and curse it and say good riddance. God loves the world. God wants to bless the world. But sin is the problem. And he's looking for righteousness. And he's saying, okay, Here's the people. I'm going to instruct. I'm going to tell them what to do. And if they just do it, they'll be righteous. And I'll bless you abundantly. In fact, like there won't even be a curse in Israel, right? That's what the law promised. You'll be fruitful in harvest. You'll have peace all around. The rain will be uh, regular. I mean, it's almost like there's no curse when you're obeying the law. He's looking for righteousness. And the parable, the man hires out the vineyard to husbandmen to men that will tend to the vineyard. He makes an agreement with them. The husbandmen in this parable represent the leadership of Israel and all who follow them. The leadership of Israel and those who follow them, those who are in their wake, those who obey them, those who are in their steps and follow their guidance. The husbandmen in Israel. Now, the man would not have hired these husbandmen if they had told him at the beginning that they would have killed his servants and his son, right? (laughs) So the fact that he hires these guys means that at the beginning, he makes an agreement with them, and they say at the beginning that they're going to do what he requires of them, right? Isn't that what happened with Israel in the Old Testament? And with the law, Israel at the beginning promises God in agreement that they're going to obey his commands, right? They say that. If you go back to the book of Exodus, you'll find the people of Israel saying, God, everything you say, uh, everything you command, every statute you have, we promise we'll do it. And so it is with these husbandmen. They say, yeah, we'll agree to that and we'll give you the fruits in season. Great. And he says, awesome. This is wonderful. Okay, I'm going to leave you in charge here and I'm going to go. Now, the fact that the men don't give him the fruit in season and the fact that they turn out to be the worst kind of husbandmen you could have hired shows that they were lying, just like the second son in the first parable that we saw, right? Son, go work in my vineyard. I, my Lord, (laughs) right? Yes, I will do it. Certainly, the husbandmen are just like that son who said, I will. And certainly, both of these, the son and these husbandmen, are just like Israel and their leaders who promised God they would obey the law. Have you ever done that? Maybe before you were a Christian? Have you ever promised God you're going to keep his commandments? I've done that. Before I was a Christian, I remember vowing to God I'd obey. Didn't work out. I didn't obey. In fact, that just makes you feel worse when you do sin. You just fall under greater condemnation, Right? It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to sin after you've promised you won't sin. It's double sin, right? Best to keep your mouth shut, Solomon said. What we see them doing here in the parable 
in verse 35 and 36, the husbandman, so when the time of the fruit comes near, the, the householder, the vineyard old owner sends the servants to collect the fruit because it's to be expected. And it says they took his servants and they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. The servants in this parable represent the prophets of the Old Testament. The servants in this parable represent the men that God sent to Israel to preach to them that they need to render to God the fruits that they promised they'd give to God. And just like, in the, just like in this parable, in the Old Testament, the leadership of Israel and those who followed them, which happened to be the whole nation, persecuted, except for a select few, persecuted the prophets. They beat them. They imprisoned them. They stoned them. They killed them. They rejected the prophets. The prophets were calling Israel to give God righteousness. That's, they were calling Israel, Israel to remember the purpose for their existence. You guys are only a nation. You guys are only God's people because he chose you for the purpose of righteousness. And if you don't yield that to God, what's your purpose of existence? God will wipe you out. So the, so the servants here said, you guys are hired in my master's vineyard to render righteousness, but they killed him. So not only did the householders not yield the fruit of righteousness, they killed those who called them to do so. They silence those who are reminding them of their purpose, who are always pointing it out that they're not doing it. They want to silence them. You see, sinners who don't give God righteousness that he requires don't want to hear about it, right? They want to go their own way. They want to do their own thing. They want to not, they want to not give God what he requires, but they don't want to hear about the fact that they're not doing it, right? They're happy just living their own way and not hearing it not hearing otherwise, not hearing someone who's coming and rebuking them or correcting them. They want to pretend that everything is okay. They want to pretend that they are righteous. They don't need this message of the prophets, that the prophets are wrong. Not a good place to be when you're in denial and not wanting to hear correction. Verse 37, what does the master of the vineyard do next? And this is a remarkable thing. In fact, it says here in Matthew, he sends his son. In the Gospel of Mark, we have an additional detail. In Mark, it says that he sends his one and only well-beloved son. Clearly referring to Jesus, right? Jesus is clear, clearly referring to himself. His one and only well-beloved son, he sends to these guys. Now this shows us, first of all, that Christ's relationship to God is unique and different from that of the prophets. Jesus is just not one of many prophets. He's just not another prophet. Jesus is a, has a special relation to God. He is the son of God, the only son of God, the one that God is pleased with. The question is, why does the master send the son? It's a weird thing, right? Would you send your son to these guys if you knew that they beat and killed and butchered uh, your servants? Why would he send the son? Why wouldn't he just send an army the first time and wipe them out? Why does he keep sending people to them? Why does he keep expecting the best from them? And what this shows us 
And what we're supposed to see in this parable is the patience of the man, the patience of the master, that he doesn't immediately wipe them out. He doesn't immediately send an army to destroy them. He gives them another opportunity to give them the fruits. It's an amazing thing. And lastly, he sends his son thinking, maybe for some reason they'll respect my son and I won't have to wipe them out and, and the whole, I'll get the fruits and I won't have to punish them. So what we see here is the goodness and patience of the master in continually sending more, being patient, and finally sending his well-beloved son in the hopes that these men will give, them, give him the fruit in season. One scholar writes this, the extraordinary patience of the householder reveals the utter depravity of the husbandman. You see, when you sin against someone who's been good to you, it means you're even more wicked, right? Now, to sin against a stranger is one thing, and it's wicked. And to sin against a bad man is one thing, and it's wicked. But to sin against a good man, to sin against someone who's blessed you and loved you, that just shows how utterly depraved you are, right? To sin against God after he's given you your life and he's blessed you with so many good things is depraved, wicked. And there's more condemnation than if you were just to sin against some random stranger. And God's patience is being shown to you in that he hasn't wiped you out yet, right? You've sinned against God, you've slighted his goodness, you've disrespected him, you've not reverenced God, you've not worshipped God appropriately, you've not obeyed his laws that he's given you, you've not listened to your conscience that he's given you, you do things that you know that God, the almighty creator, does not want you to do, and yet, look, you're still here. He's being patient with sinners. And he sends prophets, and he sends scriptures, and he sends his son. And the more you reject him, the more wicked you show yourself to be, the deeper your condemnation grows. The longer you persist in rebellion and resisting a patient and good God, the deeper and deeper you get into condemnation. As Paul says in Romans chapter 2, after your stubborn and rebellious and hard heart, you treasure up unto yourself wrath on the day of wrath. Sober thought. All the goodness of God that he's showing you, the more you resist it, turns into more and more wrath on the day of wrath. A warning to those who have not yet obtained peace with God and ignore God and remain in an unrighteous state. And yet God is being patient with you because he loves you. Now to remove all doubt, whether the husbandmen were just confused about things, their rejection of the son shows their ultimate rejection of the father or of the man, of the house, of the house owner, of the vineyard owner. They know it's his son. They say, hey, here's the son of the guy that hired us. Let's kill him. <laughs> this shows they really are totally disloyal liars and hate the vineyard owner. So it is to reject Jesus shows you hate God. It removes all doubt. Why did they do that, verse 38? The answer is envy. They wanted to be like the sun. They wanted to be in 
control. They wanted to own the vineyard. They wanted to be revered. They are the ones who wanted to be first. And we find this is exactly the case of the Pharisees in our scripture, in the Gospels. In Matthew 27, 18, Pilate himself knows that the Pharisees handed Jesus over to him for envy. He even knew, knew that. The Gentile ruler, the Roman ruler. The Pharisees handed Jesus over for envy because they wanted his place. They wanted the respect and the admiration of the people. They didn't like Jesus saying that they were not in the favor of God. They didn't like Jesus saying that they were unrighteous. And they didn't like the people listening to Jesus. And they didn't want Jesus to be the king. That guy to be king anyway. They wanted a king that would at least honor them. So it was for envy that the Pharisees handed Jesus over. So here we see that the husbandmen represent the Pharisees, the leaders of Israel at that time. All rebellion against God, brothers and sisters, has to do with pride and selfish ambition. All rebellion against God, whether it was Adam and Eve's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, Satan's rebellion, or your rebellion. It has to do with you not reverencing God, but you ultimately loving yourself. You ultimately wanting the first place. And its religious form is the worst form of all. Because in the religious form, you pretend to be humble. You pretend to be righteous. You pretend to be pious. You pretend to be reverent. And all along, you're really only in it for yourself. You're really only in it for the respect and the admiration and the glory that you get for seeming to be righteous. You want the glory from men, and you want to go to heaven and get the glory from God. You want God to say, wow, what a good person you are. Come on up and sit next to me. And then you just want to march up there and take your little seat and... Every, and the saints and angels song is about you. <clears throat> that religious pride, religious selfishness is the worst form of all because it takes something that's supposed to be good and beautiful and corrupts it. Better to just say, I'm not religious and I'm full of pride than to say, I'm religious and I'm full of humility and be full of pride. This is what's happening in verse 38. This is what's happening with the Pharisees and Jesus. And in verse 39, Jesus predicts his death at the hands of the Pharisees. He says, they caught him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Jesus says, it's going to happen. The son died in the parable. The son will die, and I, the son, will die at their hands. He predicts it. In essence, in this parable, Jesus has just given us the whole history of Israel from their entry into Canaan to the Passion Week. That's basically what this parable is. The whole history of Israel. From when God planted them in the land and gave them the law and the rejection of the prophets and the sending of the Son and the crucifixion of the Son. Here it all is in parable form. In a bird's eye view, sweeping form. And I want you to notice something very important. The continuity of the husbandmen. The same husbandmen who killed the prophets or the servants are the same guys who killed the son, right? The same guys who killed the prophets are the same guys who killed the son or killed Jesus. See, the Pharisees thought they were different than the leadership of Israel in the days of the kings who killed the prophets, right? 
The Pharisees of Jesus' day wanted to distance themselves and thought they had distanced themselves from those leaders who had, crucif- who had killed guys like uh, Isaiah and the other prophets. And they said, we're not like them. In fact, it was a well-known saying, and Jesus points out in Matthew 23, the Pharisees would say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have killed the prophets. Right? Now this parable is exploding that idea. Because in this parable, the same guys who killed Jesus are the same guys who killed the prophets. There's continuity there, right? They said we're different. Jesus says, no, you're not. Your fathers killed the prophets, and you just decorate their tombs. You're working in cahoots with your fathers. There's no difference between you and your fathers. Fill up, then, the measure of your fathers. By killing me, you are guilty of all the blood that's ever been shed from Abel to Zechariah. There's no difference between Israel under the kings and Israel under the Pharisees. Both of them are hostile to the law. Neither of those time periods produced righteousness and the fruits that God was looking for, right? In the days of the kings, Israel did not give God righteousness. They did not obey the law. But neither did they do it in the days of the Pharisees. That's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. God destroyed Israel in the past by the Babylonians because they didn't obey the law. The law says if you obey, you'll be blessed, but if you don't obey, you'll be cursed, and I'll destroy you and kick you out of the land. So the Babylonians came and destroyed that Israel of those days. But what happened in Israel in Jesus' day? The very same thing. The Romans came in 70 AD and destroyed Israel under the leadership of the Pharisees. That would have been so shocking to the Pharisees to even contemplate that Jerusalem and the temple would have been destroyed in their days. They would say, what? We're not like our fathers. The days of Nebuchadnezzar are past. Babylonian uh, captivity, we learned our lesson. That's not going to happen again. In fact, that was their their motto, never again. It's not going to happen again. We're going to turn from idols. We're going to obey the law now. We're going to do what's right, and we're not going to experience another exile. Well, instead of 70 years, they got about 2,000 years, right? Because God is showing us what's worse. What's worse is the religious form of pride. Both of them, both of those times did not give God righteousness, but one of those times was pretending to give God righteousness, right? One of those times says, we're not like our fathers. We're different. I, Lord, will do it. The second son, the husbandman who agreed that they'd obey. They pretended, but they were no different. That's what self-righteous people do. They pretend to be different than every other sinner in this world. They say, I'm not like Hitler. I'm not like that guy down the street. I'm not like those people over there. I'm not like those people over there. I'm different. I'm better. I'm righteous. But you're no different. So Jesus shocks them with this very shocking parable. The parable is shocking because it's rather extreme. As A.B. Bruce writes, this parable is highly improbable in the natural sphere. Meaning, you're not likely going to see this scenario played out in the natural sphere. And a man's going to hire some husbandmen and they're going to beat his, kill his son. 
That's probably not going to happen. But it is another instance in which parables have to violate natural probability in order to describe truly men's conduct in the spiritual sphere. See, you might say when you read this parable, whoa, those husbandmen are really bad. I'm not like that, right? You might say that. I'm not like that. I wouldn't do that. Well, I would say this. Maybe you wouldn't do that naturally. It's true. Maybe you wouldn't do that naturally. But Jesus' point is that, the, is that this is what men do spiritually. And the Pharisees themselves would have said, we don't do this, right? In fact, their very answer in verse 41 shows that they weren't thinking they were like that. So if you say, I'm not like, I'm not like the guys in this parable, the Pharisees would have said that too. But spiritually they were, and don't be fooled. If you are self-righteous, you are like this, Jesus is saying. If you are self-righteous, this is what you're like. And if you say, I wouldn't have killed the prophets in the, Old, in the Old Testament. I wouldn't have killed Jesus. I wouldn't have done that in the New Testament. You're wrong. If you're self-righteous, don't be fooled. You are just like this. And that's the point of the parable. Jesus is showing us this. Don't be fooled like the Pharisees. Anyone who is self-righteous hates the true prophets of God who preach righteousness as it is in truth. See, the true preaching of righteousness leaves everybody guilty. The true preaching of righteousness exposes you to be unrighteous, worthy of hell, guilty, not good, not worthy. That's the true preaching of righteousness. All self-righteous people hate the true prophets of, of God who preach righteousness. Therefore, you hate Jesus, and therefore you hate God. You're resisting God. So if you're self-righteous, you are like this. And Jesus asks them in verse 41, what should be done? Isn't that interesting? He asked the Pharisees, he asked the self-righteous guys, what do you think should be done with these guys? And remember, at this point, they don't even make the connection. They don't even think that he's talking about them. The fact that they answer this way shows they do not even realize at this moment, at this point, that the parable was against them. They really thought they were different. And you can see the emotion in verse 41. He will miserably destroy those wicked men. And he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Men condemn themselves by what they judge in the world. You see, you and I judge certain behavior, don't we? We condemn it. We have emotional reactions against it. We have moral reactions against it. Our consciences cry out about certain behaviors that you see. Maybe you read it in the newspaper. Maybe you watch it on the news. Maybe you've seen it in your next-door neighbor. Maybe you've seen it in your family members. And you condemn it, not realizing that we ourselves do the very same thing. How many times have you condemned somebody of something you yourself are guilty of? Have you ever done that? Maybe in the family. Classic example of this in the Old Testament is David. David commits adultery and murders the husband of Bathsheba to cover his tracks. And Nathan comes to him and tells him a little story. This is almost exactly what Jesus is doing here. In fact, it is exactly what Jesus is doing here. And Nathan tells him a story. He says, you know, there was this super rich guy who had tons of sheep. And then there was this really poor guy who had one little lamb that he just absolutely loved. Just loved this little lamb. 
and the rich guy had a guest. And guess what? The rich guy went over to the poor guy's house and killed the, and took the poor man's lamb that he loves, killed it, and had that for dinner for his guest. To the agony of the poor man. And David is outraged when he hears this. Emotional. He says, the man who did this is to be killed. <laughs> as surely as the Lord lives. And then Nathan says, you are that man. God appeals to our very own moral sense. God is not arbitrary in his judgments. And one thing men will find on judgment day is that God is like this. And on judgment day, as Jesus said, by our words we will be justified and by our words we will be condemned. And men will find on judgment day that their own words are going to come back and eat them. Their own words will haunt them. And how they have condemned others and how they have judged others and how they have looked down on others and pronounced emotional, moral judgments on others, they'll come back and give, him, give them just what they said and just what they deserve. Just what you felt others deserve. We condemn ourselves when we condemn others because we do the same thing. And, and you might say, well, you might try to rack your brain and you can't think of specifics, but it works in a general sense. When you look down on other people for being generally sinful or unrighteous, I'm a good person, but those people are bad. Well, you're bad too. And so your disdain and your passing on the other side of the street and you're not wanting to invite them over to your house, and you're not wanting to send them a card, and you're just wanting to call them a name or talk about them behind the scenes, since you're bad too, shouldn't you expect the same thing on the judgment day? Rejection. And here they say, he will miserably destroy those wicked men. That's what they deserve. The Pharisees make a judgment. The Pharisees had a conscience. They just didn't apply it to themselves. And at this moment, just like Nathan and David, Jesus shifts gears and calls the Pharisees out, you are those men. Right when they make the moral, moral pronouncement against them, he says, you are those men. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, shall be taken from you. Just like the vineyard is taken from these guys, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. And all of a sudden, they're shocked and say, what? Us? We aren't like those guys. Jesus here accuses the Pharisees of killing the prophets and rejecting the Son. The Pharisees had rejected him. And Jesus shows this in verse 43. He quotes Psalm 118. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. It's interesting in this verse we have the rejectors entitled builders. Builders is such a constructive, positive word, isn't it? Builders is not a destructive word. It's not the stone that the murderers rejected. The stone that the sinful, evil villains rejected, but the stone that the builders rejected. Builders is a positive, constructive word. And what are they building? They're building, or at least they think they are building, the kingdom of God and righteousness. 
That's what the Pharisees professed to be all about. We are building a nation of righteousness. We are building a people of law keepers. We are building the kingdom of God. What the Pharisees professed to build is good. But how they were building it, upon lies and pretending and untruth, was wrong. And they were building it because of pride. You cannot build the kingdom of God and righteousness on lies on ignoring truth and on pretending. Sadly, many people today who are religious profess also that they're builders. I'm constructive in this world. I'm here to do good. I'm here to build righteousness. I'm here to establish righteousness. I'm here to teach men how to be good. But they're ignoring truth and pretenders. Because they pretend and ignore truth, they reject the stone. In fact, if you don't know, here's a very well-known or famous play on words, the Hebrew word for stone is eben, and the Hebrew word for son is ben. The word for stone is eben, and the word for son is ben. In a sense, it reads this way, the son which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. John the Baptist also plays on the, that very word play when he says God is able to raise up sons of Abraham from the stones. He's able to raise up Ben from Eben. The Eben that the builders have rejected, he's referring, of course, to himself. The son is the stone that God chooses to build the kingdom of God and righteousness on. Jesus is essentially saying this, you can reject me from having you can reject me from having any part with your kingdom and with your righteousness, but that won't get rid of me and that won't get you anywhere. The Lord has chosen me and will make me the head of the corner. There will be no kingdom and there will be no righteousness apart from me. The stone that the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. Implicit in that verse is the resurrection of Jesus. They kill the son, but God yet chooses him to be the head of the corner. You haven't seen the last of the son after you've killed him. This was, of course, the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, as we see Peter in the book of Acts, chapter 4, quoting this very verse, the stone that the builders have rejected has become the head of the corner, and Peter then goes on to say, Jesus Christ is the stone, and there's no other name under heaven whereby a man can be saved. Jesus is the stone. Jesus Christ is the stone upon which the kingdom of God and righteousness are built, the Jews themselves believed that the Messiah would be the one when he comes that the, that the kingdom of God would be built on and that the righteousness of the nation would be founded on. The Messiah is the foundation. And yet, the leadership of Israel rejects the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They rejected him. And because of their rejection of Christ and of God and of truth, Therefore, God rejects them from having any part in the kingdom of God. And it's the same today. If you reject Jesus, and let's get this straight, to reject Jesus is not merely to reject the prophecies of Jesus or, or just that you believe he's the son of God. To reject Jesus is to reject the law of God. It's to reject the truth that you're a sinner. It's to reject the truth that you needed him, that you need him, the one who came into the world to save you and to bring you righteousness. It's to reject Christ and to say that you can be righteous without him. 
you'll have no part in the kingdom of God. Anyone who rejects Jesus will not have a part in the kingdom of God. You will have something, but it won't be the kingdom. And in verse 43, when he says, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof, we're not to think of the kingdom moving. I think in our minds, we think that the leadership of Israel hold the kingdom and God's going to take the kingdom out of the leadership of Israel's hands and he's going to move it over there and give it to some other people. Rather, we're not to think of the kingdom moving, but rather think of the old husbandmen being kicked out and new ones being brought in. Or as Paul put it, think of a tree in which the natural branches are cut off who reject Christ and that unnatural branches are brought in who accept Christ. The tree doesn't move. The kingdom doesn't move. The vineyard doesn't move, right? God planted a vineyard, but he kicks out the leadership of Israel and those who follow them who reject Christ and brings in new people. All Jews who reject Christ and follow the doctrine of the Pharisees lose the kingdom of God. They are no longer a part of what God originally established and planted. They're no longer a part of that kingdom of righteousness that he is after. But Gentiles now, which was before the land that God had not cultivated, the land that God had, had just let to themselves to grow weeds, now invites them in through Jesus Christ and through faith into the kingdom and into the commonwealth of Israel. And Christians, or those who do accept Christ, do bring forth the fruit of righteousness. We are righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. If you believe in him, you're in the kingdom and you are righteousness, righteous and you are blessed. And you're no longer under condemnation or a curse. But it's not because we've kept the law but it's because we've put our faith in Jesus, the righteous one who died for our sins, who died for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So Christians, you are bringing forth righteousness through faith in Jesus and not through obedience to the law. Right? That was the problem with the Jews. They, they didn't understand that they were guilty and that righteousness doesn't come by obeying the law but it comes through faith in Jesus. Peter talks, uh, talks about the church as the kingdom of God and the people of God. He says, Unto you therefore who believe, Christ is precious. But unto those who don't believe, the stone which the builders have rejected, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to those who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. But you, believers in Christ, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who, hath, who has called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, who in the times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Ultimately, God obviously has a plan in choosing Israel and giving them the law. In Israel rejecting God, he knew they would do that. In cutting those disbelievers out and bringing in the Gentiles, God has a, a plan, and, he, and the Bible says it's, the mis, it's a mystery, but what we can say is that it's the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
what he's up to, his grand plan and his grand scheme in the history of the world. It is marvelous what he is doing. And in verse 44, Jesus sums up everything he's been saying. Verse 44, Whoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. What this verse essentially is saying is that resistance is futile. Resistance is futile. As I said earlier, the second parable that Jesus gives focuses on what will happen to the Pharisees, their followers, and their plan or their way of resisting God, of rejecting the prophet's message of righteousness, of rejecting the son, and ultimately rejecting God and lying to God about obedience and playing the pretender and resisting righteousness, this is what's going to happen to them. They will be miserably destroyed. You reject God, you'll be miserably destroyed. You kill the son, he will resurrect. You reject the son, God will reject you. It's futile their way. Verse 44 basically is saying, if you fall on the stone seeking to destroy it, you will be broken and the stone won't be destroyed. But if the stone falls on you to destroy you, then you're destroyed. He grinds you to powder. It's a reference here to their rejection of him and their seeking to kill him, killing him. Like, you can strike me and nothing will happen to me. You'll just hurt your hand. But if I strike you, you'll be ground to powder. In this verse is implicit the resurrection. You fall on me to destroy me, and I'm still here. You seek to kill me, Jesus is saying, and I will resurrect and will still be here. But you will be broken. But if I fall on you, you will be ground to powder. Notice there's hope here for those who attack Christ. If you seek to kill me. You'll be broken. But there's hope for those who seek to kill Christ because Jesus in his amazing grace and God in his amazing grace sent his son to die for those haters of him who even rejected him and wanting to kill him. Yes, men can stumble at Christ by disbelieving in him and rejecting him and seeking to destroy him. And they'll stumble and be broken. But God can still restore and heal and save and redeem his worst enemy. That's wonderful news for people who are self-righteous. However, if God falls on you in judgment, then you'll be ground to powder and destroyed. You can't destroy Christ. He's indestructible, but you are not indestructible. In his patience, he has not destroyed you yet. But what happens when God says, time's up? And the stone that you rejected, that which would have been your salvation, ends up being your destruction. You will end up destroyed. As we sang, men will call on mountains to fall on them instead of the wrath of the Lamb. When the Lamb shows up in judgment and those who have sought to destroy Christ realize he's indestructible and that they are the ones who are broken and they realize now that the Lamb is coming in judgment, they would rather have a mountain fall on them than to face 
the Lamb. The stone is indestructible, brothers and sisters, and resistance is not only futile, but it's evil. It's evil to resist. And the Pharisees sadly did not learn the lesson, at least not all of them did. And they sought to kill Christ. They sought to fall on the stone. And where are the Pharisees now of the first century who sought to destroy Christ and who disbelieved in him? Where are they now? Right? The ones who said, we've got you now, Christ. We've bound you with ropes. We've spit in your face. We've punched your eyes out. We've given you a black eye. We handed you over to the, the Romans. They crucified. They whipped you. Or they whipped you. They beat you. They crucified you. They buried you in the tomb. Where are they now? And where is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. They didn't even realize that they're handing him over. They didn't even have the power. Jesus had given himself over. Jesus says, you have no power at all. I could call a million angels down and wipe you guys out if I wanted to, but I don't want to because I'm laying my life down for you to save you. Because I love you, I'm giving myself to the smiters. I'm giving myself to the thorns. I'm giving myself to the nails to die for your sins, to die for the sins of this world, to die for those who hate God because God loves this world. You have no power. You're just striking at a rock and you're breaking your own hand. But where are they now? Christ is risen, but those men are in hell. Where are the men who rejected Christ in the 5th century? They are in hell, and Christ is on the throne. Where are the men who've rejected Christ in the 18th century? They are in hell, but Christ is on the throne. And where will the men be who reject Christ today in the 21st century and think that they can speak a word against him and seek to destroy him and erase the truth, pretend to be righteous and pretend they don't need him? They will be in hell, and Christ will be on the throne. Resistance is futile. Why would you resist Christ? It's not only futile, but evil. It's like you're in a bomb shelter during a nuclear war, and you're trying to destroy the bomb shelter with a spoon. Why would you want to do that anyway? The bomb shelter is there to protect you. Why would you want to destroy it? First of all, it's futile, and second of all, it's ridiculous. Men are so proud that I don't like anything being stronger than me. I don't like anything that I can't break through. Well, slice of humble pie. You can't destroy Christ. Impossible. But why would you want to? He is your salvation. He is the one who loves you. He is the one who came into the world to save you because he cares about you. Why would you want to destroy him? Why would you want to throw away eternal life that was bought by his blood? For what? So in closing, a warning to all who follow the path of the Pharisees, who hate the prophets, Jesus and God. Resistance is futile, but God loves you. No matter who you are, God sent his son into the world to die for your sins. And that is the only way of salvation. One of these days you're going to die and face God on judgment day. You are guilty. And without Christ, you will eternally perish. 
all the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus have clearly showed us this. But God loves you. And all you need to do is put your trust in Jesus. Believe in the rock. Join his side and his way, not the Pharisee's way. Instead of pretending to be righteous, admit you're guilty. Instead of seeking to be blessed by obedience to the law, realize that the law condemns you and you're cursed, but that Christ became a curse for you so that you could be blessed by grace. And simply put your faith in God through Jesus Christ. Put your faith in his grace. And what you'll find is that instead of Christ being a stone of destruction to you, he will be the rock of your salvation. And instead of Christ being hateful to you, and maybe he's hateful to you now, maybe I'm hateful to you now because of what I say, but instead of the message of righteousness and instead of Jesus Christ being hateful to you, he will become precious to you and the message will be precious to you. And instead of you being cast away, you'll be accepted and welcomed into the kingdom of God. Instead of resisting Christ and God, which is futile, receive the one who loves you and live forever with him in his kingdom because of his righteousness that he gives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this very shocking parable that exposes sinners and self-righteous men to be odious and hateful and evil and wicked. And Lord, we pray that you would help, help men see, help people see, that though they feel they might not relate to the men in this parable, in the spiritual world they, they are those men. And Lord, we just pray that you draw sinners to yourself that you'd open their eyes to see the amazing message of the cross of Jesus, the amazing love of God that's revealed there for the most wicked and odious sinners. Thank you that your love is so deep and so great. And thank you that you've provided Christ to be our salvation. May we all put our faith in him and find eternal life and not have to perish by rejecting what is actually meant to save us. Lord, we glorify you and praise you give you reverence for your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.